Welcome to the Success Leaves Clues podcast with Robin Bailey and Al McDonald. Have you ever wondered what makes someone successful? What are they doing that's different? How do they achieve greatness? We believe that success leaves clues. In this series, we are interviewing very successful people from different walks of life to hear their stories. We'd like to remind our listeners that the views expressed in this podcast are those of our guests and not necessarily those shared by our hosts. Welcome back to the Success Leaves Clues podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Life and Legacy Advisory Group. Are you a small business owner who thinks they pay too much in taxes? We can help. Give us a call or book a meeting by clicking the link in the show notes to book a free financial consultation so you can have peace of mind about your financial future. We're also brought to you by ARIA Benefits. If you're a business owner or HR leader and you're needing a competitive employee benefits package to help you attract or retain that rock star talent, we can help. Check us out to book a free consultation and create a customized benefits package that fits your needs and budget. Well, we're back again. I'm your host, Robin Bailey, back with my co-host, Al McDonald. Al, what are you saying today? Well, very excited, Robin, because, well, number one, of course, enjoy doing the podcast, but I know that this conversation is going to be a lot of fun because we've already talked to our guest and I know that we're going to talk or at least touch on something that is a little bit of a passion of mine, which is bikes. Now, I won't give away everything because, you know, I don't want to spoil it for our guests. But yeah, so I'm excited about that and uh, looking forward to it. Well, I was going to say, Al, are your wheels, did this uh, conversation get your wheels spinning? So, Uh, you know, but you already alluded to what we're going to be talking about. The other thing before I do this intro, you know, it's funny when I read these intros, sometimes Al and I will comment like, well, before I met you, I thought I was quite accomplished. Well, once I get through this bio, I think everyone who's listening is going to go, oh my God, who is this guy? So we'll get through the intro and then I know we're going to have a great conversation. So with no further ado, joining us today is Bill Clem. Bill is the chairman and CEO of eBliss. He is an e-mobility transportation and business expert, as well as a futurist and technology development leader with a focus on sustainably evolving industries through innovation. With over two decades of business leadership experience, Bill has helped launch, grow, and successfully scale a host of companies across the transportation and technology industries. He was an early collaborator at Carfax, where he architected the program that later became the Carfax Vehicle History, which is huge these days. As the CEO of Fallbrook Technologies, Bill directed all aspects of the development and successful launch of NuVinci, hopefully I said that right, continuously variable transmission, which was the first viable replacement for geared systems since the bicycle was invented over 200 years ago and is the fastest growing bike transmission across the globe. At Ford Motor Company, Bill led the development of the strategy that grew the customer service division over $1 billion, that's right, with a B, in a three-year period. This strategy implementation was instrumental in ushering the company into the tire business, making it one of the largest retailers of tires in North America. During Vistian's successful IPO from Ford, Bill served as vice president of Vistian Climate Control Limited, a global leader in the aftermarket heat transfer products, leading the business from $80 million to $280 million during his tenure. We're catching up. In 2022, Bill launched Eblis, a leader in e-mobility solutions with the mission to create better engineered, enjoyable, and more sustainable ways of moving people and make them all truly accessible to all. Regarded as an innovative thought leader, collaborative business expert, and billion-dollar growth strategist, Bill's expertise has been featured in Hardball, 
Are you playing to play or playing to win? Wired, The Washington Post, and The Wall Street Journey, among others. Welcome to the show, Bill. Wow, I'm a little embarrassed and intimidated by my own bio, so thank you very much. Rob and Al, just super excited to be here Friday afternoon, and just a wonderful time to be able to share with you guys some thoughts and have a great exchange. So excited about it. So Al, do you see what I mean now after reading that yeah. bio? I was reading it and I was it was very intimidating. <laughs> uh, listen, listen I, I wanted to curl up in the ball in the corner as you're reading it, thinking to myself, oh my goodness, how old am I? But I know. We asked for bios, but I think it's important too, because, you know, the listener wants to understand who they're talking to. And, you know, whether we're talking to a young entrepreneur or someone more seasoned that has tons of experience, you know, one of the things and one of the reasons for the title of the podcast, Success Leaves Clues, is these conversations that we have, we're finding clues everywhere. And someone who has had the experience that you've had and can see around corners that maybe someone in a position that is a little younger in the career. I think there's so much benefit to that. And that's, here we are Friday afternoon. I think a lot of people on a nice sunny day here would be anxious to get out of the office. And I think Al would agree. Like, I'm just sitting here looking forward to having this conversation. Like, this is what I want to do. It's no surprise to anyone that we love podcasting. They've heard it so many times, but this is the reason, Bill. So, so glad to have you join us. Thank you. Appreciate the time, guys. It's a lot of fun to talk about this. I coach entrepreneurs on the side, so I coach a few. And again, happy to share those thoughts. A lot of people in my career has helped me. So I think it's my responsibility to help others. I believe those of us who have the capability of making a difference have responsibility of doing so. So that's just kind of who I am. Sometimes my spouse reminds me I shouldn't quite do it so much, but like you, to me, it's not working. To me, it's just a different way to enjoy life. And that's a theme we have heard over and over again from many entrepreneurs is this whole, you know, paying it forward. And I got help from someone and they gave me a leg up. They gave me an opportunity. So I'm going to try and do that again. Right. And we hear that over and over again. So it's not a surprise. And it's obviously great to hear. And the fact that people are willing to help people out for really, I mean, nothing in return other than, again, paying it forward. We're all on this planet for a short period of time relative to the planet. So you might as well give and get. You might as well enjoy it. Have a smile. It's fantastic. So, gentlemen, super excited to talk to you today. All right. Well, let's do it. Let's jump into it. You know, we talked about your experience. You've got a ton of experience. A lot of that is the automotive sector. So how does someone like you who spent, you know, a long time in the automotive sector, what makes you pivot? Like, where was the inspiration to pivot to an e-mobility company and start eBliss? So interesting. So again, thinking about this podcast over the last couple of days, I talked to some of my friends from my history. And I was just kind of thinking about these questions and thinking about my personal journey. First of all, I think I said this a second ago, making impact and having influence are two things that are very important to me. When I look at what's happening in transportation, I think the biggest shift in transportation since the early 1900s is in the middle of underway. The average new car went from 29 to $43,000. Cars are becoming remarkably unaffordable. Interest rates are tough. Car notes have doubled in 12 months. And yet there's still 119 million rides in a car every single day in the United States. Speaking of the U.S., I think about Canada as 10% of the U.S. So still 19 million rides in, happen in, in Canada. And in the U.S., 29 million of those are less than a mile. So as I look at what 
I know how to do, and that is figure out how to communicate with people, how to move people, how to manage markets and make impact. I think there's a massive opportunity. There's a massive opportunity to help consumers shift the way they move. I think we're at the beginning. In the early 1900s, when you know Henry Ford, Ransom Olds, and all these icons from our history that we've read about, what they were looking at is they were looking at demand. Consumers wanted a change. They wanted to be able to move differently. They wanted to be unleashed from the horse. They wanted to be off the front porch. And they bought cars. There was no roads, right? The roads came after. Policy came after. So demand drove all of that. And all of those gentlemen or those people that I spoke about, they created an industry. And I think we're doing the same thing. So I had a wonderful opportunity to work for Ford Motor Company. I wanted to work there since I was five years old, and I got a chance to do that when I was 22. I got to see a range of disciplines around the company and hold leadership positions, and I got fantastic training. So I understand how the whole system works, and so I understand then how to impact and influence some sectors. So I chose to start with e-mobility. I chose to start with an e-mobility on e-bikes. That isn't the end, right? Because I think e-mobility, transportation, all of those use cases and all of those products are going to come. They're going to evolve, right? People like me are going to design them and they will be out there. So I said, let's start with e-bikes. It's something I know very, very well because I did help launch the e-bike businesses in Europe. So I've watched Europe just explode in e-mobility. And so I said, you know what? Let's go do this in the US. So I gathered some people together that I respect and know and appreciate. I brought a very high-end bike designer. And then I brought a PhD technologist, XBCG, just a very smart guy. And the three of us, Eblis together. So I believe that there's an opportunity. I think the opportunity is absolutely massive. The United States is going to go from a million to roughly a million five to a million eight e-bikes in one year. You know, that's billions of dollars of economic shift that's happening, right? When you see that kind of economic uplift in those kind of numbers, it's classic. You see the early adopters, right? You see the the folks who get on what I call the Frankenstein bikes, right? That are kind of cobbled together. Then you see people start to be like me, and that's, what's the use case? What are people really going to do with this device, right? And then let's design something that actually suits them, not something they have to actually, you know, link and log together. So the other thing that I see happening in automotive is automakers aren't making money. Dealers aren't making money. Cars, when I was a kid growing up in Detroit, I was incredibly passionate about automobiles building race cars, driving them around, taking cars apart. That was us. Today, that doesn't happen. There's no personalization of the car. The cars become antiseptic, right? One of the fastest growing car companies in the world, Tesla. The car's an iPad with four wheels, right? It's And it's not anything bad because Elon Musk has done a great job and I respect him and a, as a person who's making impact. But the industry itself is now becoming commoditized. So I said, you know what? What's the next one that's going to be there? I didn't want to finance a flying car company because I do think that's coming. So I said, let's make e-bikes right. So again, the typical e-bikes sold in the United States and in Canada today aren't designed to be a piece of transportation. They're designed to be a toy. 
these bikes that sell for $800, $1,000, $1,200. Again, it's a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. But that device will not get you back and forth to work every day for two or three years. That device will rust. It will fall apart. The batteries are going to be suspect. All those things happen because the vehicle wasn't designed. So what I said was, you know, as the first wave of this starting to hit the shore, the second wave is going to be consumers are going to want a bike that looks good. They're going to want a bike that lasts. They're not going to want to have maintenance, right? They want to get on something and use it. And they're going to want to be able to adjust the use case for what they're going to do with it, right? So make these bikes kind of modular. So that's what we're doing. I mean, we'll bring 30 bike models to the market in the next 12 months. We'll have probably the broadest range of use case driven e-bikes in the United States. And so that's the reason why I did it is because I saw this massive opportunity and the other thing is, it's good for people, right? I mean, I mentioned 119 million rise, 29 million of them less than a mile. Imagine the health differences if 29 million times a day, everybody walked a mile. You know what? I'm not a statistician, but I can play one on TV. And I'm telling you, that would be a significant event for the overall health of the people in the United States of America. So these are all the benefits that I look at and say, I have a chance to go make a difference, so why not do it? I'm so glad you brought up that last point, and it resonates with me because I was just having a conversation. My wife and I recently traveled to Madrid, and the only time we took a cab or a car was from the airport to the hotel and the hotel back, and we walked everywhere. And, you know, we met some local people, and we found a lot of people had that either pedestrian lifestyle or a bicycle lifestyle, or if it was motorized, it was a scooter. And I think you're right. We're in a time in history where people are looking, you know, they're aware of the environmental issues that we're facing. They're looking for ways to be healthier. So something like this, I think, has a lot of appeal. I did want to go back because you were talking about Europe. I don't really know much about the history of the e-bike. Is that where this started? Like, where did it all come from? So let me just do cycling for a minute. So when you see a trend in cycling, more than likely it started in Europe. And within Europe, it started in Holland. You know, more bikes per person, more revenue per bike per person, more margin per bike per person. The Dutch just, that's their culture. So when something new comes out, it comes out of the Netherlands. So all things go to Europe and within Europe, all things go to the Netherlands. So when we launched my company, Fallbrook and Navinci, we launched it in the Netherlands. So we wanted to launch in the market where the heart of the market is, go to where the money is, right? The money is in the Netherlands. The average selling price of a new bicycle was 3,000 euros. The average selling of a bicycle in the United States was $126. I think we're going to launch in Europe. And in Europe, I think we're going to launch in Holland. So that's what we did. And e-bikes started the same way. So in 2009, I'm going to say maybe 10 our transmission was put on an e-bike and at the Dutch bicycle show called Fietsvak, it took bike of the year. And that was a defining moment because it was the first time that an e-bike, they'd been around for a few years previously. Excel had what's called the ION system that they launched a few years earlier than that. But this was the first time that the bicycle press and the media embraced a bike with an electric motor. The other thing with an electric motor is you're compounding the torque. And so the drive systems don't like that very much. And these bicycle drive systems, the internally geared hubs are, you know, the gearing inside of them is powdered metal and they kind of dissolve under lots of torque. 
derailers don't like the combination of the two torque of you as a human and electric motor. They get out of tune. So we said, let's build the bulletproof drivetrain. And that's what we did. And we became, like I said, the fastest growing e-bike drivetrain because it didn't break. Shimano went through such a period in which they were voiding warranties on e-bikes because basically 100% of their internally geared hubs would break. You would snap them. And so we wanted to play on that because these designs are old. And again, it's made for a bike. Nothing wrong with it. Shimano is a great company, but the technology was coming, right? And so we were that first, we invested $165 million invested capital. And that's just what we invested, not what we earned. I think our total investment in the technology was over a quarter of a billion dollars to get that device up and running. And so it took a lot of effort. The bicycle drivetrain is the most efficient drivetrain ever created by man. One unit of energy from you to the floor, very little losses. If you don't have a technology that can survive in that kind of environment, you're not going to win. We were fortunate enough to get there fantastic team. They designed and built this and that's what we started. But again, when I first set the company up and we were in Holland and we were launching on e-bikes, one of the things we did is market research. I didn't do market research, what I would call the normal way. Everybody who does market research listens to this will kind of chuckle. We sent a team of people into a thousand consumers homes in Holland. And we sat down and asked them what they wanted. We showed them bikes, talked to them about what they wanted, and they wanted three things. They wanted a high-quality seat because they rode really long distances, 18 kilometers to and from work. They wanted a noiseless drivetrain because they wanted to listen and enjoy the outdoors, and they didn't want to have maintenance. So as I told people when I was moving that company around, I got two of the three covered. I can't do much about the seat. So for God's sakes, get a good seat. So that's how the e-bike business in Europe started. It is now multi-billion dollars. Bosch Corporation, I think this year, in just aftermarket batteries, selling batteries to bikes that have already been out in the marketplace is probably a billion-dollar business for them in Europe. You created it, so an entire economy was created. This is the first year and the first market that I've seen this in, but electric mountain bikes right? So Germany is very much a mountain biking community, right? Lots of mountain bikes, very high-end mountain bikes. First time in history where electric mountain bikes are 80% of the volume. So it's the first market that I've seen in the world that a sub-market has flipped to E. So that means that we're beyond that tipping point globally. That means that because, again, remember I mentioned the technology and the trends come out of Holland then go to Germany, then come to the U.S. That's happening. The U.S. is exploding on e-bikes as well. There's still an analog bike market for mountain bikes here, but it's waning quickly. And e-mountain bikes, I think, are going to be there. The other thing that all of this does is it starts to get consumers thinking about e in cars. So one of the things that happens here is consumers, they think the E is many more things than it really is, right? They project into this thing, range anxiety comes in, all these things come in. As they start to get comfortable with e-bikes, the adoption curve on other e-mobility options becomes less of a hurdle. One of the things I made a speech in China one time, and I talked about the fact that China will lead the e-mobility in the world by far. 
And the only reason is, is because the Chinese system can't put enough gas pumps across China to get people gas to put in cars. It just is physically impossible. And so China will, just the same way they went from landlines to cell phones, China will go from small amounts of gas cars, relatively speaking, to enormous amounts of electric cars because consumers don't know any different. The range anxiety that we feel in the United States is we stare at these cars and watch that thing go down, watch the electric battery charge go down. They don't worry about it because that's what they were trained in. I had an interesting conversation with a Tesla owner the other day. I mean, his Tesla, you know, super fast Tesla, blah, 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 loves his car, but he drives the thing like a grandmother. And I was like, dude, you've got like a super fast car. Why do you drive? Bill, I I don't want to run out of juice because you know how long it takes me to charge? So I'm sitting here thinking to myself, okay, he's got this incredibly fast car with all these doodads and gadgets in it, and he doesn't want to use them because he doesn't want to burn the electricity. So again, all of these societal things are coming in back. And as I wander around your question, this is where Europe has already been. So you're seeing Europe really kind of lead the way in this kind of a sector. So the other subsector that's out there that not a lot of people talk about is transporting goods. So e-mobility options for delivering goods. I actually believe that's going to be on miles driven. I think that will end up being a bigger impact than commuters on bikes because these bikes will be used for work. But the Deutsche Post for the last 10 years, e-bikes, that's what these guys deliver in. FedEx in the US now putting delivery on e-bikes. Why? Because in my neighborhood, many neighborhoods, right? You got this FedEx truck running around the neighborhood. It's huge. Takes up a lot of space. The math says you put a container locally, you drop all your goods in it, you hire three humans on e-bikes, and they're hub and spoking out of that container, and they're grabbing it, grabbing materials and delivering them. And if you think about the impact in the neighborhood, having an e-bike deliver versus a truck deliver, you know, you're going to have accidents go down. All these things are going to be good. And the other thing that's going to happen is consumers will see that and consumers will start to get, hey, if that guy can ride an e-bike, imagine if I could ride an e-bike. So in Europe today and in Holland today, what's happening is all the bike makers are now talking to consumers about their second e-bike. What's your first one? Family commute car. Your second one, they're calling an SUV. And the SUV is a delivery bike for going to the grocery store. So that's what the Dutch, I was just there two weeks ago. And this Dutch guy told me, well, this is my SUV. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking to myself, they pick up the American term or the US North America term, and they apply it to an e-bike in Holland. So again, it's this constant churning that's going on. And again, now that trend is coming to the US, different market, not the same kind of infrastructure, all that stuff, totally true, but it doesn't need to be right? You still have plenty of places where e-mobility options are viable. I mean, my neighborhood, I think there's 11,000 homes in this area that is near the Tesla factory in Austin, Texas. And it's a fantastic place for e-bikes and e-mobility. So Bill, I do want to dive into something there. And by the way, I picked up on your comment about the three important things, because I can attest to the importance of a comfortable seat, uh, (laughs) quiet so that I can hear what's going on and no maintenance. Because if there's anyone who doesn't want to do maintenance on their bike, it's me. I just want to get on and ride. But that's an aside. When you talk about e-mobility, like we're not just talking about e-bikes, 
it's a much bigger thing than that, I assume. Can you just talk a little bit about, you know, the whole big picture of e-mobility and maybe some misconceptions too about e-mobility? I think one of the things that we see happening is there's a lot of new devices that entrepreneurs are starting to do Kickstarter campaigns on everything else that are e-mobility. You're starting to see that innovation cycle start to kick in. And so one of the things that's happening now is these new ways of transporting goods and humans are now starting to iterate. And they're all coming from these entrepreneurs who are bringing these products to market. They're all going to be what I call use case driven. I think scooters are going to have a huge part in the next generation of mobility, but I don't believe they're going to be the scooters that we necessarily see today. I think there's going to be iterations. I think four-wheel scooters, much more stable, bigger wheels, so you don't hit little pebbles and things and fall on your face. I talked to an ER doctor in Austin, Texas, and he told me Friday and Saturday nights in Austin, Texas, the number one thing during this period of time that they would see in the ER are people riding these scooters and, you know, those hard front wheels hit something and they face plant. So one of the things that's happened to date is the makers of the vehicles are making what they want to make, not what the consumer wants to use. That's the flip that I see happening now. And I'm going to say that's what we're going to do, right? We've got a needs matrix that we run through all the time, and that's our product development driver. Today, it's for bikes. I would tell you we're looking very strongly at several scooter designs that are out there that I think are innovative, some very sleek and unique ways to get the weight properly balanced on the scooter and a device where you can sit and or stand effectively. So those are all those use cases that I see coming up. I've seen people try and design, you know, and say what the future is going to be. I don't think anybody's ever been right when they've done those things, but they do push the envelope for what's possible. And I really believe that we're just at the beginning of that cycle. If you think about what happens on that normal journey, so somebody innovates and comes up with a new toy, right? A new device. By the way, the one that I love is, oh gosh, what was the name of the company that had the the two-wheel balancing scooter? Dean Kamen was the inventor of it. Segway. So Segway, fantastic idea. No product market fit. Way too expensive for the use. That's the experimentation cycle that's going on right now in the marketplace to come up with these ideas. One of the things an automotive guy told me is we in the automotive industry can't decontent our cars anymore. We can't decontent them and take content out because right now there's so much content that customers don't value and don't use. And that what he said to me was, is that the re-engineering of transportation is going to start at the bicycle and come up. And by the way, he said that to me as one of the top guys in the industry in 2003, when I first started my company. He said that to me, and that's what got me on putting our transmission on a bike first was the prototype was a bike, but that's what got me into a full development program because I saw the wisdom and having to redesign the whole system from the wheels on the ground. What are you going to use it for? What's the distance you're going to travel? How much are you willing to pay? How much does it weigh? What's the form factor? All those things are going to fit into people's lives. The other thing that I see happening is I see combination devices coming out. I see cars and other systems that are going to have an integrated e-bike or an e-mobility product within them for the last mile of transportation. The first segment that I see that happening in is the RV segment. Today, if you buy an RV and the guy who sells the RV doesn't sell you two e-bikes with them, 
I'll describe him as less than an intelligent human being because that's a slam dunk. You're selling him a hundred thousand dollar, you know, can. You should sell him some e-bikes with it. So that's the best answer I have is this innovation cycle is really thriving now. The other thing is, think about it. When I worked at Ford Motor Company, I joined in January 1985. There was zero chance somebody could start a new car company. Zero chance. Technology, being able to design and build a car was limited to the capital that was enforced behind these automakers and the system. The technical capability of the world has risen so fast and so far that now you got car companies popping out every other day. There's probably 15 car companies in China nobody's ever heard of. And in the United States, there's at least five or six that are still popping around. And they're single point cases, right? So now you can design to build a car economically for just a delivery. Before, the United States Post Office could never get cars because those square boxes never broke, so they kept them running around in the U.S. So, But now you can economically do that. Tooling costs are less expensive for intricate tooling. Being able to model drivetrains, being able to model crashing, all that stuff is now computer-aided. So as that capability has risen, so has the ability to evolve quickly and more efficiently. So there's a fascinating, but... There's got to be some challenges out there. And, and we talked earlier too, and I had asked you a question, which you had a great answer for it. And maybe we can talk a little bit about that. I had said in the US, the car is an icon. It's been there forever. How do you overcome that? Or what are the challenges? Like, what are some of the challenges that you see to people adapting, whether it's e-bikes or some of these other e-mobility solutions? So first of all, let me stratify the differences in ages. Because young people don't care about getting their driver's license. Young people don't care about cars. There's not a romantic notion of a car. Why? Because when they were 15, they didn't have one in their driveway they were wrenching on so that they knew when they turned 16, they'd have a car to drive. Whereas what did I do? Lord God, at 15 and three quarters, just before 16, that car was ready to go when I got my driver's license. Today, that passion has left, right? Those young people, they don't care. Young people do care about the environment. They do care about being a part of something bigger. They do care about making impact. Those things matter to young people today. So in that world, I think we need to hold on really tight because they're going to tell us where to go. Ride sharing. You look at the ride share statistics, young people do ride share like all day long, right? Totally custom to it. No reticent about doing it. Now, let's set the other side of that. So people of my age, 55, 65, right? People of that age, they grew up in cars and they're becoming inquisitive about what to do, right? About, I've been reading about these e-bikes. So the biggest challenge that we have is trial. That's the biggest challenge that we have in our business is to create trial. We launched with Tomberlin, which is a, they make these golf carts. They make, call it LSVs, low-speed vehicles, fantastically designed, beautiful carts. And they have 144 dealerships. And so at the PGA event, we launched and they had dealers show up. We did a hundred test rides with the dealers and their families who were all there. 75 out of the hundred people had never been on an e-bike. 100 of them, once they got on the e-bike, wanted to buy one. 
But the issue was getting them to swing that leg over the bar. You're a cyclist, you know it, right? It's an uncomfortable position to be locked in pegs, to have your feet clipped in. Very uncomfortable position because if you don't get out of those things fast, you're hurting yourself. Yeah, Uh, that's right. (laughs) If I would have told those people that they had to put themselves into clips, they would have never ridden. But getting them to swing that leg over, you could see people unlocking the possibility. I get this. One woman said, I can do this. So it's that confidence. So the number one challenge we have in the US is to create trial. You know, everybody thinks online, you know, all these people are starting these e-bike companies are going to sell them online. Interesting. Maybe you'll sell them. That's a price game. You're not going to play a features game because you can't have people try them. So for us, our number one challenge is to create trial. I want to make the necessary easy. It's necessary to try a bike. Let's make it easy for them. So to do the other thing we're doing with that, because the other thing they think about on these bikes is the stuff you just mentioned a minute ago. And that is, what have I got to do to this thing? Is this chain going to fall off? Lord God, let's not have that. Oh, am I going to get grease on my pant leg? Let's get rid of all of those excuses. But we still have to educate the consumer. We've done that. We have to tell them this is what's going on. So the number one challenge we have is that. The number two challenge, I think, is quite frankly, making sure that government lines up with demand. Because one of the things I note from the U.S. legislature and and Congress and the White House, they don't understand this conversation we're having about what consumers want. They're looking at regulating things. They're looking at this, looking at tariffs or looking but they're not really thinking holistically. And they're also not partnering with the industries that are struggling to gain capital to be able to transform this system into a more e-friendly system. They're putting regulations that are out there. You have to provide the companies with the capital structure. They have to have a capital structure that's risk adjusted to be able to go through that kind of transformation. So the second big challenge is to making sure that government and industry are truly partnering because 1960, I think, John F. Kennedy stood up and said, we're going to the moon. Everybody behind him was looking at him and saying, we don't know how to get to the moon. Like we have no freaking idea how to get to the moon. Well, 1968, I think we landed on the moon. So in eight years, we went from NFW, no freaking way we know how to do this, to we dropped a few humans on the moon. The same opportunity exists with the right leadership structure and alignment with industry. That was a beautiful alignment in which technology and innovation were honored. They were invested in. The government and industry came together and we extended our technological lead dramatically on a number of areas just because we did a moonshot. If I could say one thing to Congress and to the president of the United States, this is what I would say. You're missing an opportunity to create the next technological differentiation in the United States by driving and creating an innovation cycle in the U.S. that is aligned between government and industry. So those are, in my opinion, the two biggest challenges that I face and that we face. I'm not sure our podcast is going to make it to the White House or to Congress, but hopefully if it does, they'll hear that. And I think, again, I shared this with you before when we talked I shared with you that I was on a bike tour in California and there were a bunch of older individuals on that ride with me. And the thing that most impressed me was out of 10 riders on that tour, 
seven of them, all older, had e-bikes. And I thought, you know, what a great opportunity for them because uh, one of them was in his 80s and he had early onset Parkinson's and yet he was still able to use this e-bike. So in terms of getting people out there, what you talked about was trial and just being open to the idea. Uh, There was a group of people that were using it successfully and I thought, what a great way to remain active because if they'd had to ride a road bike, they wouldn't have been on that tour. So interesting. So relating this to mountain bikes, mountain e-bikes are a blast. They are a lot of fun. You expand the market. You create a market that more people can participate in. And some people say, oh, you know, e-bike, you're not getting any workout. That's not true. That is inaccurate. You get a great workout and you get as much workout as you want because you dial in your own assist. And the other good news about an e-bike is if the battery dies, you still got a bike. You have to get back. <laughs> you, can, yeah, you can get home. An electric car, you get the battery that dies. Well, you know what? You're waiting for the hook. But anyways, so I think those are fantastic points. And again, the reason why I'm doing this is because I just see this absolutely massive opportunity to help write history. So why not? I want to pick up on something that we talked about in your bio, and that's the description of being a futurist. And thank you, by the way, because I didn't know a lot of the history around the e-bike. So this has been very educational for me and a really interesting conversation. But if we're looking forward, you know, the next five, 10, 15 years. And with, you know, what sounds like going to be a rapid adoption, especially across the US, and you were talking about China and where it is already in Europe, what do you think it's going to look like? And maybe speaking to North America, because even though our podcast is global, I mean, most of our listeners are going to be in North America. What's that going to look like, Bill? So one, I think we'll be somewhere near Europe on the number of e-bikes being sold. So it's called circa four to five million up from one. So one, that's what I see. Second, what I see is I see an enormous amount of different kinds of e-mobility attachments, trailers, cargo. I just see a whole industry coming that's going to have all of those things in it. And then from that, then integration starts. So 1973, 37% of the cars in the United States had air conditioning. Today, 100% of cars have air conditioning. In fact, you wouldn't buy a car without it. Well, same thing is going to happen on e-bikes and e-mobility products. So today it's one style, one model. As people start to get there, then it becomes affordable from a capital deployment standpoint to upgrade and to add things to those bikes because people will buy them because you know people will buy them because you've tested them with the aftermarket products and the other products. Same thing happened in automotive. It's just going to happen faster. The clock speed on change is happening so much faster. There's a book that was written called Thank You for Being Late, Thomas Friedman. And again, I like a lot of what he writes, not everything, but I do like this book. But one of the things it talked about is the pace of change for everything around the world is becoming uncomfortable for all of us because we can't comprehend how fast things are changing. Artificial intelligence, all this stuff, we can't comprehend that. All of that will drive the speed of adoption of all these products because they're being able to be made more affordably faster. And so that innovation cycle is just going to happen that much faster. And so for us, that's the reason why we're diving into it and innovate them so quickly is because we need to learn. We need to learn what's going to work and what's not going to work because what is available for sale today 
is not necessarily what's going to be what the consumer of tomorrow wants. And so we've got to be out there with those consumers in their living rooms, asking them, showing them devices and making them think about that. So I see that 119 million rides at 29 under a mile, I see that dropping dramatically. And what I tell my team is if we can own the mile, we'll own the seven miles. Because once people start, again, he's shaking his head because he knows what I'm going to say. Once you get on a bike and you start to ride, you're comfortable getting at a mile. Another mile is a couple more minutes. And then that cycle starts to go. What do the kids see when their parents are doing this? The kids see that as a standard mode of operation. So then the kids want to do it. And then the grandparents want to do it. A long time ago, I read a quote from Bill Gates, or is attributed to Bill Gates, And he said, the internet will become ubiquitous when my grandmother uses it. E-bikes will become ubiquitous when my grandmother uses them. But again, I think they become ubiquitous. I think five years from now, we're at a three to five million unit volume in the United States. I think battery recycling becomes a huge deal. I think the carbon footprint for making bikes gets adjusted. I think people start to think about that. I see onshore manufacturing happening with bikes. 1973, number one bike retailer in America, and this, I haven't verified this, this is what I've been told, was auto parts retailers. I didn't know that. So that cycle is coming back. You will see us launch an e-bike program for auto dealers. You'll see us do a store in a store. We will pilot it this year. We'll roll it out next year at NADA, and we will put auto dealers in the e-bike business because- At the end of the day, auto dealers have to prove to the consumer that they're E. The study that I read, and I talked to somebody about it, said that the consumers believe that the only E auto company is Tesla. So auto dealers are struggling with how do they get into consumers' brains? Well, how do you do it? You sell them an e-bike. You package an e-bike with a pickup truck, right? I call that a hybrid. So if you package an e-bike with a gas-powered truck, that's actually you're selling a hybrid because you're selling a multi-mode transportation system. So that's what I see happening. I see auto retailers changing to transportation retailers. I see the devices becoming more sophisticated. Fortune magazine in February said automakers need not fear other automakers. They need to fear the golf cart makers. And again, I think that whole cycle, that's what I'm banking on and the evidence is very, very clear. These episodes, Bill, always generate a lot of my LinkedIn inbox, a lot of, you know, asking questions and commentary. I know, I already know, I can see it. Someone's going to be asking me because we're sitting in Canada, you're sitting in the US. Someone I guarantee in my network is going to say, where can I get one in Canada? So I just signed a distributor in Canada. So uh, he doesn't have bikes yet. And if he doesn't call me three times a day asking when he's going to get his bikes, but we are setting up distribution across Canada. We've actually met with a few auto dealers in Canada, lots of interest from automotive retailers, because again, let's call it a five to $800 gross margin on an e-bike sold at retail. It's kind of like a small used car. And you can sell insurance and you can sell mechanical breakdown, everything else. So again, it's a transportation. So you will see us and my LinkedIn will be the best place to get news about me and us probably or Instagram, but you will see us launching eBliss in Canada. Like I said, just signed the distributor. He's right outside of Toronto. I am going to remind you, Bill, that in our previous conversation, 
you put the offer out to me that when that happens, I will get an invitation to try out the e-bike. So I just want to make sure that you don't forget about that. And then I will post on LinkedIn. We're getting that on. I was going to say, we're getting that on video for sure. Listen, 100%. Let me just reinforce that. You guys will get, in fact, you know what? He has two samples. We should do this offline. I'm going to connect him and have him bring a bike over and let you guys take it. Wonderful. Awesome. I'm in. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, I did commit to that. And yes, we're going to let you do that. Okay. Good we call. got it on video now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Bill, before we get to Al's signature question, because it is my favorite part of the podcast that we do, is there anything else about e-mobility do you think our listeners should be aware of? You know, I think it's not as much of a mystery as everybody makes it out to be. I think it's much simpler than this, than what everybody thinks. So I think what I would like to give your listeners is try it, create trial, do it yourself, swing your leg up over that seat and get on that bike, adjust that seat down, pick one that works for you and give it a try. Again, the majority of consumers, I I have these bikes in my garage, right? I have these samples and I put them out. My neighbors all come over and I can't get the damn things back. They just take them and ride them all over the place. So the data is clear. If you try it, you'll do it. So what I would ask your listeners to consider is give it a try. Second thing I would get them to think about is I would like to have them consider what that experience is going to be like over a period of several years. What are you going to maintain it with? One of the things we like to think about is where the touch points on the bike and make sure the touch points are super high quality. You got one button start, you got a belt drive, you got a sealed transmission. So think about how you're going to use this because what also happens is if the experience isn't good with that, it won't get used. And then those consumers will paint a picture that all of them are there, right? We commonly live our lives looking through microscopes, not telescopes, right? So we look at a microscope down on a very individual event that's ours personally, rather than looking at a landscape and pulling it in close with a telescope. So that's what I would just ask and challenge everybody who's out there, give it a try. The number one market for e-bikes in America, interesting, is Minneapolis, Minnesota. Is that crazy? I thought it was going to be Southern California or something, but the number one market for people, and that weather isn't that favorable sometimes of year, right? But it says that, you know, this whole weather notion isn't as big of a notion as you think. Was in Toronto a couple of years ago, talking to some people that cycle every day, and they cycle every day in Toronto, right? I mean, it's they true. do. Yeah, it's true. I have a lawyer client that doesn't matter the weather. When we get those heavy snowfalls, obviously he's not doing it. But otherwise, if it's cold, hey, I bundle up and, and I'm on my way. Yep. Anyways, Al, what's the signature question? Well, you know, in many, many ways, this whole conversation has really answered this already. But definitely. Yeah, I will still definitely. ask you the question because maybe there's something else that we don't know about you yet. And you'll <laughs> answer it a very different way. So the question is this. A society grows great when old persons plant trees in whose shade they will never sit. So can you talk about any of those proverbial trees that you might be planting? So for me, I believe it's important to incubate innovation across the entire industry. So this year for us, it's about execution. So this year is about just making sure the supply chain works and the bikes are okay and all that stuff and customers are happy. The next round for us is on innovation. And it's really around the technology innovation and so the trees we are planting in the background are around technology. I think in technology, it's energy storage. I think drivetrain, which is what I did before, 
I see the next big thing is energy storage and using that energy, that lithium ion battery inside that e-bike is stored. And that's an energy asset that's sitting there. What's the highest and best use of that energy asset over time? I was on a call with an innovative company out of Korea this morning, and they have a fast charge technology that allows you to charge your e-bike in three minutes, you can get 75% charge. There's a lot of limitations and a lot of things, but that is, in my opinion, those are the big ones. And for me, are we going to see fuel cells in e-bikes? What's that energy storage really going to look like? So those are the areas that I think will extend beyond my life cycle of being involved in this will be the energy storage and energy usage. I just think that's the next frontier for all of this is going to be where the energy is going to come from. There's been a fascinating conversation and I am looking forward to trying out a bike. Oh, you're going and, to get uh, it. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, I'm looking forward to getting <laughs> on a video out, too. I'm looking forward to getting it. Yeah. In all seriousness, you know, I do think back to that trip in California and there will come a day when I'm just probably not physically able to ride a road bike anymore. And like, why not? Why yeah. not ride an e-bike and to extend that out? Because it's, it's too much fun to give up, right? You actually struck on something, you know, older people with electric trikes, right? Electric golf carts. Those communities and those closed loop systems, I think are going to be one of the other big things we're all going to be experiencing. Like I said, my 85-year-old mother is bugging me for an e-bike and I'm like, no, I'm not getting you an e-bike. You know, then you're going to crash the e-bike. But I would think about getting her a trike, Yeah. Mm -hmm. right? So again, where are those use cases for that individual human and their experience on what they need to do safely with this device? Well, Al, you said it best. This was a fascinating conversation. I am so glad that we met and we're now connected. I have a feeling we're going to stay connected. So thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your journey. Again, fascinating. What's the best way for people to reach out to you if they have questions about yourself or what you're doing at eBliss? Sure. I'm very active on LinkedIn. So that's going to be the best way to one, follow the company. So follow on eBliss Global. But the second thing is, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Like I said, I have six, five, six, seven thousand contacts. So I interface with lots of people on that platform. Very useful for that. And it's kind of the best way to have exchanges. Yeah, it really is. Well, thank you so much again. I really enjoyed this conversation. As always, audience, I hope you did too. If you have any questions for Al or myself, please feel free to give us a call or by joining the conversation on LinkedIn. As we've seen here today, success leaves clues. We'll see you next time.